Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Robert Armstrong had walked just over two miles, as far as he could judge, when his torch failed. He stood still for a moment, unable to believe that such a misfortune could really have befallen him. Then, half-maddened with rage, he hurled the useless instrument away. It landed somewhere in the darkness, disturbing the silence of this little world. A metallic echo came ringing back from the low hills. Then all was quiet again. This, thought Armstrong, was the ultimate misfortune. Nothing more could happen to him now. He was even able to laugh bitterly at his luck, resolved never again to imagine that the fickle goddess had ever favoured him. Who would have believed that the only tractor at Camp 4 would have broken down when he was just setting off for Port Sanderson? He recalled the frenzied repair work, the relief when the second start had been made, and the final debacle when the Caterpillar track had jammed. That sounds like a pretty dire situation, but one should never think. Nothing more could happen now, (laughs) because things can always get worse. Lucky for you, things are about to get much, much better, because you have tuned in to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Leike. That is the intro to the creepy sci-fi story, A Walk in the Dark, by Arthur C. Clarke. This (laughs) sci-fi story gonna leave its mark. Gonna jump up and buy you like a great white shark. Leave you with no head like poor old Ned Stark. You know, if this story were made into a movie in 1986, that would definitely be the rap song that plays over the end credits. (laughs) Although nobody would understand that Ned Stark reference. No, that wouldn't make any sense. But in a way, that would make the song ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. Just like an Arthur C. Clarke story. Mm. So it's perfect. Who was that reader? That reader was Mike Mason. Mike is the line lead developer for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, but he is also the co-host of Mason and Fricker's Eldritch Stories podcast. I have heard rumblings about this podcast. I believe it just started recently. Yes, it did indeed. Season one features 12 stories, six written by Mike Mason and Paul Fricker. Every other week, they read one story or Eldritch Terror. On other weeks, they do the Eldritch Extras show where Mike and Paul chat about gaming, movies, television, books, and so on. It's a cool show, so check it out. It's at eldritchstories.com. We'll, of course, link out in the show notes. Speaking of the Lovecraftian world, our friends at CryptoCurium recently sent me a bunch of figurines from their Eldritch Abominations line. It's an ongoing series of Lovecraftian figures. You know, they're sculptures about three or four inches tall. You got Wilbur Waitley, Shagoth Schools, Yithians, Brown Jenkin, Elder Things. The list goes on. They're so super cool. And I think listeners would dig them. So I just wanted to mention them. And we'll also link out to that for your uh, knickknack shopping pleasure. And a final bit of business. Patreon recently did a partnership with Spotify. Mm -hmm. So you can link your Patreon and Spotify accounts if you use both services. And you can listen to our subscription feed that way. So Mm -hmm. I'll link to an FAQ in the show notes on how to do it. Of course, there's a free feed for the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast on Spotify, as well as Strange Studies and Strange Stories. Each of those contains our once monthly free shows, of which this is one. But if you search Witch House Media, on Spotify, that's going to show you the subscription show with all of our episodes, the whole run since 2009. And if you're not a subscriber, you can click through on that Witch House Media feed and sign up for the subscription service right from Spotify now. If you're already a subscriber and you also use that service, you can link those accounts. The future is here. We're living in it. Yeah. And since it is, we're going to do a whole month of sci-fi stories. That's right. We're coming off a month of Cthulhu mythos horror and wanted to get into some mind-bending, hopefully laser-containing short stories. Mm -hmm. But this is September, which means spooky season is here as well. And we didn't want this transition to be too jarring, so we're doing a science fiction story that is also 
a horror tale. Mm. And it's by one of the all-time greats, Arthur C. Clarke. We've never covered Arthur C. Clarke on the show before. He's a big name in sci-fi and mostly known for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. But let's get into this guy's biography a bit more. This is the part in the sci-fi movie where like, I'd wave my hands around in the air and a big holograph of Clark's head would appear (laughs) and rotate around while a computer voice reads his biography. Born Arthur Charles Clark (laughs) in 1917 in Somerset, England, he grew up on a farm. He was into stargazing, fossil collecting, and American pulps. I'm going to stop doing that right now. That's pretty good, though. Did I? It was really good. I was into it. As I was saying, when he yeah. was in his teens, he contributed to a junior astronomical magazine called Urania. If you're from that era and you're a fan of the pulps, then you probably dug H.P. Lovecraft and Arthur C. Clarke did. Yeah. He was also, like Lovecraft, a huge fan of Lord Dunsany, the fantasy writer, yeah, yeah. and corresponded with him until Dunsany's death in 1957. Writing to Dunsany, he said of Lovecraft, His best stories were masterpieces in their genre. Early in his career, Clark actually wrote a story called At the Mountains of Murkiness, which was a Lovecraft parody. But I think that fondness for the cosmic horror tale is highlighted in today's story. As an adult, Clark moved to London and worked as a pensions auditor. When World War II broke out, he served in the Royal Air Force as a radar specialist and was part of the Battle of Britain. After the war, he went to college and got his degree in mathematics and physics. He served as president of the British Interplanetary Society from 46 to 47, then again from 1951 to 1953. That's the oldest existing space advocacy organization in the world. Well, Clark is very closely associated with space travel, and rightly so. He wasn't just a science fiction writer, he was a science writer as well. Mm -hmm. He wrote a number of nonfiction books on the technical details and societal implications of spaceflight. According to the New York Times, his uh, 1951 nonfiction book, The Exploration of Space, was used by the rocket pioneer Werner von Braun to convince President John F. Kennedy that it was possible to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. He helped ideate that whole thing, and indeed, on the 20th of July, 1969, Clark appeared as a commentator for the CBS News broadcast of the Apollo 11 moon landing. He was an early proponent for using geosynchronized satellites for communications. And so, like you said, he kind of got the whole field moving by talking about it. Yeah, he thought, hey, we could use those for audio and video, and he was right. Uh, His first science fiction piece was published in Astounding Tales in 1948 called Loophole. He would go on to publish many short stories and novels. One of those short stories, The Sentinel, from 1951 would go on to be the inspiration for the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out in 1968. Clark helped write the screenplay and wrote the novelization of the film. That's a huge landmark film, and the creation of it is a whole story in and of itself because he and Kubrick decided to make the film together and settled on the Sentinel as the source material. But their whole idea was to write the novel together first and then make it into the screenplay and then make it into the movie. Clark would be really pissed if he just heard you call it a novelization of the film. Or that he helped write the screenplay because there was a bit of a clash of egos there. Uh, The the two of them thought, first, let's work on the novel and then go outward from that, like I said. But as Clark recounts, this is more or less the way it worked out, though toward the end, novel and screenplay were being written simultaneously with feedback in both directions. Thus, I rewrote some sections after seeing the movie rushes, a rather expensive method of literary creation, which few other authors can have enjoyed. Wow. The novel actually ended up being published a few months after the release of the movie is how it all shook out. And the book was credited to Clark alone, and Clark later complained that this had the effect of making the book into a novelization, (laughs) and that Kubrick had manipulated circumstances to downplay Clark's authorship. For these and other reasons, the details of the story differ slightly from the book to the movie. The film contains little explanation for the events taking place. Clark, though, wrote thorough explanations of cause and effect for the events in the novel. James Randi, the skeptic, 
magician, later recounted that upon seeing the premiere of 2001, Clark left the theater at the intermission in tears after having watched an 11-minute scene, which did not make it into general release, where an astronaut is doing nothing more than jogging inside the spaceship, which was Kubrick's idea of showing the audience how boring space travel could be. (laughs) But that made me laugh. That made me laugh. I'm laughing now. Because, well, I was Googling 2001 A Space Odyssey the other day, and the autocomplete was, why is 2001 so boring? Somebody was, like, asking Google that. I got to be honest, it is a boring movie. If you're in the right mood, it's awesome, but... Yeah, you've got to be really patient with it. I was trying to explain it to my kids because we were talking about it. Uh Uh, They're like, is it good? I'm like, yes. There's parts that are amazing, like some of the best cinema ever made but then there are whole sections of it that are just <laughs> mind-numbingly dull yeah so you know whatever and and then kubrick was like how can i make this even more boring <laughs> gotta admire that overstuffed yeah. yeah it's funny it's nuts now one of his most beloved novels childhood's end was published in 1953 and that was the book that really solidified him as a giant in science fiction. That's the one I'm going to pick up because I'm kind of a Clark neophyte. Oh, me too. And folks seem to love that one. Although I think it's got your pet peeve with sci-fi, like lots of ESP stuff. Aww. I think that's present in a lot of his early work. We should also mention that his first novel is unique in getting a couple of rewrites, the one that he did before Childhood's End. It was first published as a novella called Against the Fall of Night in 1948. Then he rewrote it and expanded it in 1953. And then he reworked and expanded it a third time. Wow. And it became The City and the Stars in 1956. And that was kind of a big hit in the field. Yeah. I was reading synopses of The City and the Stars as well as Childhood End. They're like chock full of Lovecraftian concepts and horror imagery. In The City and the Stars, there's a cult worshiping the great ones who are going to make an apocalyptic return. Oh, jeez. And like in Childhood's End... They're these alien overlords that don't present themselves for a huge portion of the book. And then when they finally do, they're these awesome heavy metal demons, <laughs> like literally demons. <laughs> Reading the synopses of those books made me feel like I was hallucinating. Wow. I've been, you could probably hear I've been a little sick lately. So I was yeah. reading through that and I thought maybe this cold medicine is getting to me. <laughs> I don't know what's going mm-hmm. on. Clark was also known as a member of the big three, which was Clark, Asimov and Heinlein. Yes, those were the science fiction bros. Apparently, he and Asimov had what was known as the Asimov-Clark Treaty of Park Avenue, put together as the two were traveling down Park Avenue in New York while sharing a cab ride. This accord stated that Asimov was required to insist that Arthur C. Clarke was the best science fiction writer in the world, reserving second best for himself, while Clarke was required to insist that Isaac Asimov was the best science writer in the world, reserving second best for himself. And I just imagine the driver was like, you both win at being cocky. Get out of my car! Clark was briefly married from 1953 to 1964. The marriage, though technically long, Mm -hmm. the relationship ended way before the divorce was finalized years later. This was a young woman he met on a trip to Florida, very quickly married. And I, I, Florida just makes you do crazy things, I guess. I read they separated only after six months. Now, Clark was gay and he ended up moving to Sri Lanka in 1956, mostly due to the fact that people there are more accepting of gay people. That and the scuba diving. Clark was very into the scuba diving. And in fact, he set up a school there that I think is still around. And in the year that Clark moved to Sri Lanka, 1956, while scuba diving, he and his business partner, Mike Wilson, uncovered ruined masonry, architecture, and idol images of the sunken original Koneswaram temple, including carved columns with flower insignia and stones in the form of elephant heads spread on the shallow surrounding seabed. So this guy also discovered the ruins of an ancient temple. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like telecommunication, space travel. He found the ruins of an ancient temple. My stories are all like, I saw Harrison Ford eating a salad one day. That's about like <laughs> as crazy as it gets. This guy's life is nuts. Oh, yeah. I did see him eating a salad one day. That's awesome. <laughs> Pretty much right up there with that, finding the temple. Now, he had a life partner, uh, Leslie Inkanayaki, who died 30 years before Clark did, and he referred to Leslie as the only perfect friend of a lifetime. Yeah, I believe they're buried together. Clark was knighted in 2000 for service to literature by the Queen of England. Mm -hmm. That's the only one that can do it, right? It's pretty exciting, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. Now, he died in 2008 at the age of 90, and I thought this was pretty cool here. It said, this is from Wikipedia, just hours before Clark's death, a major gamma ray burst reached Earth. Known as GRB 080319B, the burst set a new record for the furthest object that could be seen from Earth with the naked eye. It occurred about 7.5 billion years ago, wow. the light taking that long to reach Earth. Larry Sessions, a science writer for Sky and Telescope magazine blogging on EarthSky.org, suggested the burst be named the Clark event. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. obviously, there are a lot of neat things to learn about Clark and his work, and we'll doubtless be getting into more of it on the show. Yeah. Where hopefully, you know, he'll make another appearance. This story, A Walk in the Dark, was originally published in the August 1950 issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories. In the preface I read for the story, it said, a distinguished science fiction editor once wrote that the first story she read by Clark when she was very young was this one, and it frightened her so much that it was years before she could bring herself to read anything else with his <laughs> name on it. Is it that scary? No, <laughs> it's not. It's not that scary. But maybe it is. Let's find out, shall we? We begin with Robert Armstrong. And I just want to point out that this story came out 19 years before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Are you saying that he stole his name from this story? He did. Wow. Robert has been walking two miles in the darkness with his flashlight. But now that flashlight has died. He is in total darkness. He's out in the middle of nowhere on an alien planet. His Caterpillar track vehicle has broken down on the way to Port Sanderson from Camp 4, which is where he was stationed. He's trying to get there before a ship, the Canopus, takes off. If he misses it, he'll be stuck on the planet for another month. He's got four hours to get there, and the walk is only four miles, but in darkness is going to be a problem because he can't see anything. There's some stars, and the moons are tiny, but they don't throw off enough light for him to see the road at all. It's a very elegant horror setup, mm. but does differ from more traditional horror stories in that there's no real sin on the part of the main character. You know, it really was a series of unpredictable breakdowns yeah. that is causing him to have to walk four miles in the dark. Aside from the outer space futuristic setting... That's the element of science fiction that kicks off the story. The brutality of space travel. This didn't happen because he was greedy or careless. It just happened because in space, the tiniest of breakdowns are life-threatening. Mm. So now there's the blackest of black roads and a ticking clock. He's got to take this walk in the dark. The road is smooth and the edge of the road is very rocky. So he can feel his way there, but it's going to take time. So he has to balance moving quickly and not falling over because maybe there'll be a gully or a cliff or something and he could die. And there's strange holes in the ground all over the place on this alien planet as well. The writing is really good. It puts you right there. The road is wide. And because the only way to know he's going to go off the road is to kick the edge of it as he's scoffing along. He finds that instead of walking in a straight line down the road, he's zigzagging back and forth, which is just wasting time. It says, presently it settled down to a routine. It was impossible to estimate his speed. He could only struggle along and hope for the best. There were four miles to go, four miles and as many hours. It should be easy enough, unless he lost his way. But he dared not think of that. 
So the road itself is pretty safe. There isn't much life on this planet at all and nothing that can harm him, or so he believes. And he could use the stars to keep his bearing, but the road's not straight. And as you said, the stars are barely there. On a night as clear as this, the skies of almost any other planet would have been blazing with stars. Here at the outpost of the universe, the sky held perhaps a hundred faintly gleaming points of light, as useless as the five ridiculous moons on which no one had ever bothered to land. He is out in the remotest part of the remote. Eventually, Robert gets to a bend in the road, going left, and he thinks, oh, I'm nearing the pass. And if that's the case, I'm halfway there. Yay! But no, the road is going straight, which means he's still got four miles to go. So frustrating. He thinks about how that four miles is such a small distance compared to the trillions of miles that he's traveled uh, in space. Yeah. throughout his life. He's been a spacer for 20 years, and just this year alone, he's traveled the length of the galaxy, that's about 100,000 light years, twice. Now, he's really downplaying how many miles he's traveled, because he says trillions. Yeah. But he's way off. The galaxy is a quintillion kilometers across. Billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. It's, right. I was more interested in this bit when it said he had twice made the crossing of the galaxy, and that was a notable journey, even in these days of the Phantom Drive. The Phantom Drive. (laughs) I like that way better than Warp or Hyperspace or the Epstein Drive or any of that stuff. But all that, it means nothing right now. It says he was facing nature with no weapons but his own strength and skill. Of course, that makes me think about my reliance on technology, my kids, and how I'm teaching them their reliance on technology. Yeah. You know, how... We have lived through this change. When we first moved to Los Angeles, to get around, we used the Thomas Guide, which was just a map, basically. Right. A book of a map. Mm-hmm. And that's how you had to navigate that city. You'd look up a street in the in the index, and then it would give you coordinates, and you'd flip to that page and find it. Yeah. And then you'd have to figure out how to get there. And I wonder if we... And I think this is something people have been wondering since technology was invented, Uh whether we're being too reliant. We over-rely on technology, and in some ways, you kind of have no choice if you want to be a part of modern society. True. You know, if if you want to read a menu in a restaurant, sometimes they go, well, you have to scan this thing with your phone. You know, it's that that's happened. And of course, if you leave the planet, it's all tech reliance. Atmosphere is reliant on tech. Now, we finally get to the source of Robert's unease. It seems when he first came to the base, the guys were regaling him with stories about the area and the base itself. One guy in particular, an old base clerk, told a story about walking through Carver's Pass at night. And there was something, something there that was just beyond the light of his torch. Now, the planet is supposed to be uninhabited, yet the old guy claims that there was a living something out there. And here's the shift into horror story. Who can't relate to that feeling that something is just beyond the range of your light, moving away at the edge of it? Armstrong is thinking about the old man's tale over and over, but being a good space traveler, he knows he can't let this fear get a hold of him. The only way to conquer imaginary fears was to face them boldly. He would have to do that now. He tries to reason with himself. He says, look, this planet is desolate. There's almost no life on it. But there are these strange tunnels, which could be volcanic, but maybe they're not. Life often crept into such places. With a shudder, he remembered the giant polyps that had snared the first explorers of Vargon III. (laughs) Polyps that has shades of shadow out of time. Yeah, for sure. He's also doing that science fiction thing where everything's numbered. You know, Vargon III. And I think we get some good Clarkian stuff here. It says, the vast majority of life forms in the universe were completely indifferent to man. Some, of course, like the gas beings of Alcaron or the roving wave lattices of Chandeloon, could not even detect him, but pass through or around him 
as if he did not exist. Mm. Others were merely inquisitive, some embarrassingly friendly. There were a few indeed that would attack unless provoked. I think about that all the time. And I know we've discussed it here, how so much in the first contact stories about humans and aliens communicating with one another, trying to figure out what the other one wants. Mm -hmm. But we don't do this with most life forms on this planet. I'm not really in dialogue with the rabbits or the birds, the squirrels outside. No. You know, we affect each other, but our ways of thinking are so different that we're not coordinating with each other explicitly. Nobody's going out to make contact with the wildlife before they build a road. They just do it. And I feel like that indifference is more likely between us and an alien race. I don't know what these floating brains want. They're just here now. We got to live with it. Hope they don't get into the tomatoes. <laughs> Go on with life. The thing about Clark that is interesting is his aliens are really alien. Right. It's not just a, a proxy human kind of thing where it's like a human with blue skin or yeah, yeah. You know, they've got a third eye or whatever the thing is, but they're basically human. So these things aren't. <laughs> no. He thinks about how he actually laughed at this old guy's story when he told it. But now... Robert's not laughing. Mm. As he's thinking about this, Robert hits a rough patch in the road and he isn't sure where he is anymore. So he has to feel around and he thinks, okay, let's be positive now. One, nobody believed this old guy story. None of the experts on the base, people who have lived on this planet for years have seen anything to corroborate this story. Two, there's absolutely no evidence. Just some old guy saying that he thinks he heard something. It says, if it had been hostile, why hadn't the creature come any closer? Because it was afraid of my light, the old chap said. Well, that was plausible enough. It would explain why nothing had ever been seen in daylight. Such a creature might live underground, only emerging at night. Damn it. Why was he taking this old idiot's raving so seriously? Mm -hmm. But then he thinks, well, what would the creature live on? There's no vegetation on this whole planet, no ecosystem of life. It doesn't make any sense. But this only half convinces him because he remembers something. The plant beings of Xantil Major. Oh, no. Those guys are worse than the roving wave lattices of Chandeloon. (laughs) (laughs) It says, what made them appear so distressing now was the knowledge that they could live for indefinite periods with no food whatsoever. All the energy they needed for their strange lives they extracted from cosmic radiation. And that was almost as intense here as anywhere else in the universe. Mm. Robert also remembered that their world was similar to the one that he is on now. I mean, if you're dealing with alien life, then all bets are off in terms of sustenance, at least. Sure. The roving wave lattices of Chandeloon survive entirely on leftovers from Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Science thought that was impossible. The story that we're covering here, it's pretty much this guy's internal conflict more than anything else. Yeah. And how we can scare the crap out of ourselves when there's nothing to be afraid of. But the reverse of that is also humans doing a really good job of saying everything is fine when it's really not. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my personal anxiety comes from those exact thoughts. Same here. It's so relatable that it triggers you into going through this predicament with Armstrong emotionally. Yeah. Uh Even though Clark hasn't done anything in particular to endear him to you, he's a stand-in and you're taking this walk. Yeah. It works perfectly, too. I'm in there right away. Now, he gets to the pass and Robert feels better about having these walls of stone on either side of him. But he now remembers that it's just after this pass that the old man's story took place, Mm. if it took place. As he makes his way out, Robert tries not to remember the bit of the story that caused people to stop laughing, the thing that creeped them out. The old man said it was as if the thing following could see perfectly in the darkness. It had many small legs or pads so that it could move swiftly and easily over rock, like a giant caterpillar or one of the carpet things of Kralkor II. Now, when he said the carpet things, it was like, whatever. Even when he said Kralkor, I was like, yeah, sure. But Kralkor too? 
Bob had a heart attack. And this is where the real creepy bit happens. Yet although there had been no noise of pursuit, there had been one sound that the old man had caught several times. It was so unusual that its very strangeness made it doubly ominous. It was a faint but horribly persistent clicking. The old fellow had been able to describe it very vividly, much too vividly for Armstrong's liking now. Have you ever listened to a large insect crushing its prey, he said. Well, it's just like that. I imagine that a crab makes exactly the same noise with its claws when it clashes them together. It was a, what's the word, a chitinous sound. Robert remembers laughing at that bit, which, of course, is not funny at all right now. Nobody ever has been searching for a word, by the way. Oh, what do you call it? And then landed on chitinous. <laughs> it's never happened. The old man knew he was going to land on chitinous. <laughs> that was for dramatic effect. Yeah, he's a raconteur. That's what he is. Armstrong remembers that the text going out to the site took guns with them when they normally wouldn't after hearing this story. And when they came back, they said that they found something strange by one of those large tunnels. Near the mouth of the tunnel was a massive rock, half embedded in the ground, and the sides of that rock had been worn away as if it had been used as an enormous whetstone. Zoinks! Like something was sharpening its claws on it! <laughs> now this guy, Andrew, could see that everybody was creeped out by this story, so he dared them to go out at the pass at night, and nobody took him up on it. Mm -mm. In fact, Robert recalls, no one ever walked out there ever, night or day. No human could live out there during the daylight because there was solar radiation. They had to wear this radiation armor to protect themselves if they did go out during the day. There's no reason to be walking around there. They take the tractor when they travel through it. This right. is just a, a highway for them. So no reason to walk like he's having to right now. As Robert leaves the pass, he knows he's coming out into a plane. And since it's flat, there won't be any way for something to get the drop on him, or at least that's what he tells himself. I like, too, how the pass was good because it had walls. Yeah. So he felt protected on either side. But now he's in the plane. Well, that's good because nothing could sneak up on him. Right. <laughs> so he's trying to find the positives in both situations. He also knows that coming out of the pass means that there's only two miles to go. Yes. Still... He's not sure how long he's walked because he has no light for his watch. And he's not sure how fast he's actually going because of the zigzagging he's doing across the road. He even gets the idea in his head that he might actually be going the wrong way. That's what would be torturing oh, me. God. Five minutes in, I'd convince myself of it immediately. And then you're like, should I turn around? Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, but if I turn around and I'm not going, the, then, oh, oh, God, that's horrible. I hate thinking about it. Now, the more he walks, the better he feels. Getting further from the pass and closer to Port Sanderson, as soon as he can see the lights from the port in the horizon, he's like, oh, yes, I'm almost there. And he mentioned how it's strange that the planet is much smaller than Earth, but has almost the same gravity because it's a very dense planet. It's made of some more dense material. The smallness makes the curvature of the horizon much more stark. Then Robert turns on a road and he remembers that there's a chasm nearby and then he's got to tack on an extra 30 minutes to his journey to avoid this chasm, yeah. which making this turn goes behind some rocks, which means he can't see the port's lights anymore because <laughs> of this ridge. He's just seen his goal and now he's got to curve around in this long diversion. It says, very unreasonably, his intelligence told him he began to think how horrible it would be if anything happened now so near the end of his journey. Oh, dude, I can't tell you how often I have that thought. Like, of course. 
I'm getting close to home. And I'm like, oh, now I'm going to get in a car accident. Yeah, it's drowning with the shore in sight or being the person who gets killed the day the war ends. Being able to see the goal, the escape, it intensifies all that fear in the last few moments. Now, he notices how quiet it is and how there is no sound behind him. So friendly and familiar was the noise that did reach him at last that the anticlimax almost made him laugh aloud. Drifting through the still air from a source clearly not more than a mile away, came the sound of a landing field tractor, perhaps one of the machines loading the Canopus itself. In a matter of seconds, thought Armstrong, he would be around this ridge with the port only a few hundred yards ahead. The journey was nearly ended. In a few moments, this evil plan would be no more than a fading nightmare. It seemed terribly unfair. So little time. Such a small fraction of a human life was all he needed now. But the gods have always been unfair to man, and now they were enjoying their little jest. For there could be no mistaking the rattle of monstrous claws in the darkness ahead of him. That's the end of the story. The monster wasn't following him. It was lying in wait, just as he almost made it out. That last paragraph was so abrupt that it kind of surprised me that it was over. But that's part of the rhythm of the story. You know, him thinking about the vast distances he's traveled, but how these four damn miles have become so important. And Mm -hmm. how at the end, it's just a small distance to safety. But in this little stretch, he's going to meet this creature. It's showing how these these infinitesimal things can have such outsized impact. Mm -hmm. A few things go wrong and that's it. That's it. Assuming the monster kills him. You know, he could punch it out. Or they could form a bond and a relationship and they get married three years later. Anything like that is possible. Yeah. <laughs> There's a cool illustration of the monster uh, by friend of the show, Michael Bukowski. Oh, yeah. On his blog, Yog Blogsoth. I will link yes. out to it. The creature's not described, but he took a pass at it anyway, and it's pretty cool. I also read for this month a story called The Cold Equations mm-hmm. by Tom Godwin that I was thinking about doing, but... It was just so damn sad. So sad. Where it's a a stowaway on a ship who has to be... Well, I won't spoil it for you, but it's a stowaway on a ship that was precisely engineered to support a certain amount of weight in order to deliver some supplies. So when the stowaway, this young girl, shows up, well, she can't be there. Otherwise, it's going to foil the mission. So there's a cold equation to what has to happen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That reminded me of this as well. Just that little bit of error has disastrous consequences when you're relying on technology and everything being artificial. And that's what space travel is about now and what it's always going to be about because we're leaving this habitat we've evolved to live in. I don't know. That's like the most sci-fi concept in here to me. Yeah. More so than Vargon 3 is just that (laughs) incredible vulnerability that humans have once they once they leave home. It's nuts. I want to thank our reader, Mike Mason, co-host of Mason and Fricker's Eldridge Stories podcast. Please go check that out. And as always, I want to thank our stakers who make these free shows possible. They are the best. And I want to start by thanking Crypto Cartographer. I'd like to thank Alistair Brooks. I'd like to thank the twins. Andy Boss Coffee Garcia. Thank you. Angelina Brown. Thank you. Dr. Eric S. Vallone, MD. Thank you. And Ben A. Thank you. Dr. Eric S. Vallone, MD is a little bit of overkill. Well, pick one I, or the other. I he didn't put that there. <laughs> I'm going to say thanks to Eric over the horn here because he sent me a copy of that Africa book, the one that 
was mentioned in Black Man with a Horn. Oh, right, right. And I said, you know, it's an actual real book that talks about cannibals. Jungle, what's it called? Jungle Ways. Jungle Ways, that's what it is. I remember the name of it. And it's so fascinating. It's like one of the best reads I've ever had because there's so many different layers going on with it. I, I could talk about it for months. It's like a month's worth of podcasts. It's really it's so amazing. I got to grab a I, copy of that. I highly recommend people do it. I just want to say thank you so much, Eric. That was a very thoughtful gift and I'm really enjoying it. Well, that's awesome. A few uh, commentators said that they had read that and that it was a real thing and that it was really interesting. So I'm going to look for a copy of it myself. I will say the last thing about this story. It made me think of Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn in it. You know, if she'd yeah. been in if she'd been involved in this, they would have had an advantage on this alien planet. Hey, we're going to do science fiction all month. Next week, we're going to do Alamagusa by Eric Frank Russell. And then we're going to do Nobody Bothers Gus by Aldris Boudris. And then we're going to uh, finish it out with The Anything Box by Zena Henderson, which is a really, really good story. That story is amazing. So look forward to those. We're going to be back next week with Alamagusa. Until then, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. At strangestudies.com. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Ah!